Hello and welcome to Restoration Church's Teaching of the Week. If this is your first time, welcome. So glad that you were able to join us. If you'd like to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about restoration, you can go to restorationaz.org. And with that said, we hope you enjoy this week's teaching from Landon Myers. Thank you, Amberly. Hope everyone is doing well. As Amberly said, my name is Landon, and I'm, I'm grateful to be one of the, the team members here with the, the Restoration family. And today we're going to continue through this series, kind of reviewing and, and looking at the different practices that we've done over the years as the screen shows. Uh, one of those practices has been prayer and lament. So today will be thrilling. Um, verse 1 of Psalm 77 says this, I cry aloud to God. So today will be um, just really exciting. You're going to leave in a great mood. <laughs> On April 5th, 2022, Joe Gibbs uh, published a book titled Game Plan for Loss. In the book, he, he talks about how he is a coach that won three separate Super Bowls, as uh, somebody that founded and began this uh, really successful professional racing team, had really perfected the art of planning, of preparation, of uh, collaboration, of teamwork, of recruiting, of being ready for any given moment, of having thought through all the different scenarios and knowing what to do with kind of any if-then. If this happens, he would know then what to do. But the book talks about how he had absolutely no plan and answers and instead was filled with confusion and some anger and, and just deep hardship when his, his firstborn son died at the age of 49. And so three years after that, he wrote this book called Game Plan for Loss, recognizing that there is so much loss in life and that we actually need a plan for that. Life is not always easy and fun and happy. It's often broken and, and brutal and painful, and there's nobody sitting in a chair here today that uh, can't attest to that in some way. Now, not all of life is that way. Some are unfortunately dosed with more or, or less hardship, but the reality in a, a sinful, broken world is that hard things happen. J.D. Joe Gibbs' son, uh, was a college athlete. He loved to hike and bike and swim and play football with his, his sons in the backyard. And at age 44, all of that slowly began to be stripped away from him with this disease that initially they did not know what it was. And over five years, everything was taken. It started just with his energy levels, the amount he talked and listened and was active in, in the business and the teams. Eventually, though, five years later, he could no longer walk, he could no longer talk, he required 24-hour care, and uh, the family did everything they absolutely could to help, to look for a cure, to do anything possible, and eventually there was nothing left to do, and he, he passed. I'm going to fast forward now. So this was April 5th, 2022. This book was published three years after uh, J.D.'s death. And it was, I think, November of this past year when uh, 
the Xfinity championship race was taking place in Phoenix. And so I had the opportunity to go with my mom and my dad and my son. He's six. His name is uh, Ellis. And we went to this race I had never been before. And it was an absolute blast. My son loved it. We got pit passes, actually. My mom and I got to talk with Joe a little bit before the, the race began. It was, it was an amazing experience. The, the race is coming down to the last 10 laps, and, and my parents are, are right behind uh, their pit. Ellis was too small, so we couldn't be there, but we're right at the fence on the inside of the track watching, and it was like spinning circles, watching the cars. They go so fast, then looking kind of at the board to see the times and how many laps are left and who's in first place, and Ty, Joe's grandson, was winning the race, and if he won, he would be the champion for that year for the first time ever. It was going to be incredible, and so we'd been watching him for for months, really. Ellis got really into it because Ellis's first name is actually Ty, and so he liked that this guy's name was Ty, too. And so Ellis would be like, Dad, what's happening? I'm like, he's still winning. He's like, no, how many laps left? Nine. And then it'd be like 30 seconds, and then the next lap, Dad, what's happening? I'm like, he's still winning. How many laps left? The next number's eight. <laughs> One more time, Dad, what's happening? Well, they went around the circle another time. Is he winning? Yes. How many laps left? Seven, believe it or not all the way to the last one. And I'm like lifting him up. He wins and it's the end of the season and it's crazy. I mean, it's like what you see on TV for any championship. There's the champagne, there's hugs, bottles fall. It was incredible. The adrenaline, the excitement was so fun. And honestly, I think it was only like five to 10 minutes after that, uh, since the, the engines were shut off, Ellis, I was able to bring him back where all the, the pits were. We found my parents. Everyone was going to the, the center kind of place where there was gonna be this trophy presentation. They were gonna celebrate this massive win that Joe's grandson, Ty, had just accomplished for this racing team. And, and uh, Ty's father's name is Coy, and we just happened to see him. He had gotten us the tickets for this, and he recognized my mom. And so right after, we got to go talk with Koi. No one else is around. They're all going to where this trophy is going to be presented to Koi's son, Ty. And he's high-fiving my son, Ellis, and just making jokes, processing like all of this that had just happened in this championship. And it was, it was remarkable. There's music playing. My son will always remember that for his... Uh, show and tell in kindergarten this year. He brought his little special VIP pass and told everybody that he got to go take a, a picture next to Ty's car, all of this stuff. It was really fun. The next day, so like 12 hours later, um, I was teaching here, because it was a Sunday that race took place on a Saturday, get done with the second service. And I'm in the lobby just talking to people. My dad's talking to somebody, my mom is. I kind of see that in my periphery. My dad gets a phone call. And that happens a lot, so I'm not thinking too much of it, but then I, I happen to look, and I see this look on his face, and it is not a good look. You've probably seen this um, type of look, unfortunately. It's the, the type of look that, you know, something, like, truly awful has happened. Not like maybe is happening, but something truly awful has happened. And so I look at him, and now I'm going, like, oh, no, what? what happened and my mom is deep in the midst of another conversation like laughing communicating all of this is going on and he pulls me and he pulls my mom over and we walked into to this little side room here and he shares that he just got a call that coy ty's uh father joe's uh remaining son had passed away in the middle of the night just 12 hours ish 
mere hours actually after this championship race was won and by his son and just this deep beauty. This was on a, let me find this date here, uh, losing it, uh, in November of this, this past year. It's only about 12-ish months, a little bit more than that, maybe nine months after the book was published, game plan for loss on how to deal with the loss of his firstborn son and then his secondborn son is lost right after that. I mean, I've never experienced peaks so significant, rejoicing and celebration, and then literally mere hours later, just total, just weeping and mourning and loss. And I wanna read you a couple quotes from, from this book by, by Joe Gibbs. He says this, God may not always show up the way we want him to, but that doesn't mean he isn't there. He is always there. He is there in the people who comfort us when we are hurting, who gives us a shoulder to cry on when we are sad, and who reach out to us when we need help. Though there were days God felt very far away, the truth is he has never been closer than he was in those five difficult years. When someone we love is suddenly taken from us or falls gravely ill, it can sometimes feel like God is somehow powerless to stop it, or worse, that he is somehow responsible for it. But nothing could be further from the truth. God is all-knowing and all-seeing, and he loves us more than we can possibly comprehend. That's the voice, the words of a father who had just recently lost his son and who would soon again lose another son. Acknowledging real hardship and brokenness and loss but not creating a dichotomy where that means that God is no longer good. That's hard to do. That's, that's significant. Just this year, I had two separate conversations with people within our church who, with warm tears rolling down their cheeks, shared stories of just, just the pain of life. And to kind of provide perspective, there's very few weeks that I don't have those conversations. Very, very few. They're few and far between. Uh, I share that to say, life is hard. There's pain. There's brokenness. Some of you right now are in a, a practice group working through prayer and lament. Uh, but this is something that's important for all of us. There's this book right here. We have it for sale in the, the lobby as well called uh, Deep Clouds, or excuse me, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. And it's a really helpful book on this topic of lament in it. The author utilizes Psalm 77 to create this paradigm of how we can practice lament, explaining what lament is. And I think it's something that's absolutely essential for us as Christians uh, to learn, to know how to do, not to pretend that everything's okay. We don't accept Jesus into our life and then become perfect suddenly, and nor do our lives just get perfect. What the world needs to see is honesty, that life's still hard, but we have somebody trustworthy always, no matter the moment, who never leaves us. I want to share a few of the keys from this book about lament to kind of provide a foundation for us. The first says this, you might think lament is the opposite of praise, and it's not. Instead, lament is a path to praise as we are led through our brokenness and disappointment. We are still called to praise in the midst of brokenness and disappointment because brokenness and disappointment will be real things we deal with in our lives. But the pathway to that praise is this thing called lament. 
The author continues to say, lament is prayer in pain that leads to trust. Lament is prayer in pain that leads to trust. Even in the, the midst of the most broken and, and brutal moments, we can still trust Jesus. That doesn't mean it's easy, but lament is this form of communication between us and the Father that moves us to praise, that moves us to trust. Lastly, that's kind of this foundational truth. Lament is the path from heartbreak to hope. In the moments where we do not know what to do or maybe we just don't want to move at all because life is that miserable, lament is this word of motion. When you don't know how you can keep going, take the next breath or the next step, being deeply honest with God and coming to him with the worst things we're going through is this path forward through the darkest moments in which the finish line is always seeing the faithfulness and trustworthiness of Jesus. It will always end in that place, but it does not mean that it is easy getting there, but he will show up. Pain, brokenness, hurt, confusion, it's going to hit every one of us. It just does. Wish I could say different, but I can't. The good news, though, is that Jesus will always meet us right in the midst of that. I want to go ahead and, and look at, at Psalm 77. We'll see how this psalmist actually practiced lament. As I mentioned, some of you uh, are right now in our lament practice. A lot of this is going to be familiar, but I think providing this foundation is, is worth the review, or maybe you heard some of this last year, but even refreshing uh, myself on this information was helpful, so I hope it will be for you as well. Let's read verses 1 through 9. Psalmist says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. I sought the Lord in my day of trouble. My hands were continually lifted up all night long. I love this, just honesty. I refused to be comforted. I think of God, I groan. I meditate, my spirit becomes weak. He tries to do the right spiritual things, and guess what? He still feels miserable and awful right after. Verse four, he's speaking to God. You have kept me from closing my eyes. He's almost blaming God to some degree. I am troubled and cannot speak. I consider days of old, years long past. At night, I remember my music, I meditate in my heart, and my spirit ponders. He, he hates the day that he is living in. He really doesn't even want that to exist anymore. And so he just tries to cling on to something fond from the past because it seems as if that's all he has left. He wishes he could rewind and never get to the day that he's in. And it leads to these series of questions. Will the Lord reject forever and never again show favor? Has his faithful love ceased forever? Is his promise at an end for all generations? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? This psalmist here is grasping for hope and seemingly losing grip. Have you ever been at that place with God? Or just in life? He wants something so different, but the reality he's facing is deeply broken and painful. This is a key point that I think we often misunderstand. Biblically, God not only permits, but he invites us to be painfully honest as our first step towards trusting his promises. Let me explain that. We'll keep it up on the, the screen for you. God does not ever want you to pretend 
I think so often we approach God as if he is this feeble, weak creature that cannot handle the truth of our lives. And, and so we come to him in prayer or in something else and we go, you know what? I don't think he can actually handle all that's happening in my life. I don't think God has time to deal with the issues I'm facing right now. I don't think he has the answers to, 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 to provide for me in this moment. And so we sometimes come to God and we kind of put our, our best foot forward and pretend we have it all together. And that is the last thing God wants. What God wants from us is deep and brutal honesty. The scriptures clearly invite us to be, here's a key word, painfully honest with God about what is actually going on in our lives. Even if, hear this part, even if it seems as if we're insulting God along the way. God can handle that. God can handle when we question him. God can handle when we don't understand. God can handle even if we blame him. And he'll still be there in the next moment and the next. He's a lot stronger and capable than we give him credit for. Look again at the, the list, specific list of questions this psalmist asks that again could very much be kind of assumed to be insulting. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never again be favorable? Have you wondered these things about God? Has his faithful love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all generations has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger withheld his compassion? And guess what? God is okay with the psalmist asking these hard, pointed questions at him. Notice that. These are questions asked at God. They're not the friendliest, fondest of questions either. The gospel permits and expects our honesty. And this is the reason why. In the midst of our own or others' pain and brokenness, the more honest we are about what has happened or what we feel, the more aware and open we are to embrace God's love and let him be God instead of trying and failing to be God ourselves. The, the honesty that we come to God with kind of functions like a bridge. We're building a bridge from God to us. And on one side of this canyon is our pain and brokenness. And we want solutions and answers to the questions and confusion. Or just someone to be there for us because it's just awful. And the more honest we are about what we're going through, the more real we are with God in those moments, that builds a bridge to God. And then he shows his faithfulness. For various reasons, we're often not real with God. Maybe it's uh, the type of father you grew up with or the family structure where there was no place for tears or pain, where there was work to be done, where you would be shamed for that or something of that variety, but that is not this father. He's as strong as they, they come. He can handle anything, but he's also deeply compassionate and merciful and understanding and most of all, perfectly loving. It's important. We talk about this fairly often when we consider our reactions, especially our emotional reactions, relationally to God, to think about what has led us, what has formed our image of God in our minds, and how that leads us to treat him. It's most often, really always, the distance we create from God has been created by something distorted we've come to believe about him. 
The reason we often don't lament is because we believe something untrue about God's compassion and love and capability and mercy. We might not and often do not have the answers to the questions we're asking, but lament is recognizing that we know the one who does. We know the one that we can come to in those moments. The psalm makes a pretty significant transition in verse 10. Psalmist has complained. He's been honest before God. And then he says this in verse 10. So I say, I am grieved that the right hand of the Most High has changed. Notice this. The scriptures say God does not change. Yet he goes, God has changed. He's struggling with the truths about who God is. He is grieved with what he believes God has done. So I say, I am grieved that the right hand of the Most High has changed. Yet I will remember the Lord's works. Yes, I will remember your ancient wonders. I will reflect on all you have done, and I love this, and meditate on your actions. We have to remember these things that are true about God, what God has done in the past, the ways he has been faithful again and again, because in the the deepest, darkest of valleys, it's when we remember the faithfulness of God that we can begin to move forward. Honestly embracing the pain and brokenness is a key step that allows us to embrace the truth that God is still good, capable, and caring. Those are, those are three key words. Good, God is good, God is capable, and God is caring. In the midst of your own pain or the pain of a loved one or a friend or, or someone you just run into somewhere, there's a really good chance that a lie has been told that God is either not good or God is not caring, or God is not capable. It's so much of what Joe Gibbs' book talks about in Game Plan for Loss, those questions. How can God actually be good when this has happened? If God is good, does that then mean that he's not capable? If God is capable and nothing changes, can a good God actually be caring? It's a really fair questions to ask that we probably don't have the answers to in the moment. But the psalmist does the right things, key step, this transitional movement in the midst of our laments. First, be brutally honest with God. Second, after we've brought our complaints, there's this transition to remember how God has been faithful. And then look at how this resolves. Verse 13, God, your way is holy. What God is great like God, like Yahweh? You are the God who works wonders. You revealed your strength among the peoples. With power, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and they trembled. Even the depths shook. The clouds poured down water. The storm clouds thundered. Your arrows flashed back and forth. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Lightning lit up the world. The earth shook and quaked. Your way went through the sea and your path through the great waters, but your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The miraculous exodus is being remembered here so that this psalmist who is going through deep and painful and real things can hold two truths in his hands at the same time. One, what he's facing in this moment is devastating, and that is real. And two, God is still good, capable, and caring. When he remembers his history, both of those things can exist 
at the same time. When you're going through the worst things in life or when someone you love is going through something deeply challenging, the way Satan is going to want to attack is to build a wall between those two truths. That either you have to pretend this pain isn't real and just get over it, stuff it down somewhere, or admit that God must not be good, capable, or caring. Yet those things can exist simultaneously. I shared this when we, uh, actually let me step back for a second uh, to kind of conclude and really make this tangible in this, this book, the author provides four steps of, of lament and you see them in this psalm. Number one is turn to God. God doesn't want you to get your stuff together before you come to him. We make that mistake all the time with our sin. We think, ah, you know what? I've done a lot of bad things or I've not done enough good things lately, so I better do a little, a little bit more good and a little bit less bad before I come knocking back on the door to God. That way he'll accept me. If you're thinking like that, stop. You've been trained totally wrong. The whispers and lies of the deceiver are working. Jesus just says, come back now with as big of a mess as you are, because he already knows, and you'll be welcomed with open arms. First step, also, in the midst of our pain and suffering, it's not like get it together a little bit more first. Stop crying, toughen up, get over it. No, in the worst moment, just come to Jesus. Number one, turn to God. Number two, bring your complaints. Did you know that you have the freedom to bring your complaints to God? even when they're unfounded, even complaints filled with bitterness, even complaints directed at him. He invites that. We turn to God, number one. Number two, we bring our complaints with brutal honesty. Because believe it or not, he's God and he can handle it. Number three, ask boldly. I love that the scriptures say, like, Jesus says, you speaking to humans, know how to give good gifts to your children. You don't give them stones and snakes. You give them things they actually want. How much more so does your Father in heaven know how to provide? Ask boldly. God invites us to do that. And then lastly, and this one's hard, but it's worthwhile, choose to trust. That doesn't mean pretend. Step number four doesn't say pretend, it's not hard. It doesn't say, get over it quickly. It doesn't say, just move on. But in the midst of the journey that you're on, choose to trust because he never has failed and he's not going to start with you. The four steps of lament. Turn to God. The psalmist did that. Then he brings his complaints, brutally honestly. Then he asks boldly that God would show up and work. But then you see in the end, when he remembers God's faithfulness, though it doesn't feel like God will be faithful and show up, he chooses to trust. Not his feelings, but the faithfulness of this God that has lasted for all time. Jeremy and I, when we were working on the, uh, the cover and all the images when we put together the practice booklet for the prayer and lament practice uh, a little over a year ago, and I shared this at that time, we were astonished. We thought we were going to have like a five-minute meeting to find the right images to put in the booklet. Be easy to find some crying, sad people. Like, there's a lot of that in the world. Shouldn't be hard. It took us hours. I mean, 
not one or two, like three, four. Finally, I was like, I can't do this anymore. I have some other things to do. Can you finish this up, Jeremy? And I don't know how long it took him to find the right images. We would type in things as basic as crying people, like Google search that. And there'd be people in the images just laughing and smiling. You're like, this doesn't make any sense. We try all kinds of variations. Sad people, depressed people, people with no hope, like all kinds of things we would type into the Google search. More than half of the time, it was smiling, laughing people. This is wild. But I think it was such an unbelievably accurate picture of how we deal with hard things in our culture. We pretend they don't happen. Or when they do happen, we get over it as quickly as possible or stuff it down. We do anything other than deal with it head on. You know why? Because we don't know how to. We don't know who's trustworthy in that moment. And Christians, unfortunately, I think are very seldom different. So what does it say when we pretend we have it all together or we pretend we don't have hard things? And everyone knows we still do. I think it actually communicates that this Jesus we claim to worship and put our whole faith in isn't trustworthy in the darkest of moments. That our faith will crumble if hard things happen. I think that's part of what makes this so important. What your Christian brothers and sisters need, what your non-Christian neighbors need, what your Christian or non-Christian family members need, your co-workers need, is for us as followers of Jesus to display honesty about our lives. Honesty when things aren't right. Because when we honestly lament in front of people, what they can see is that Jesus is actually trustworthy even in the, the worst moments. Now most of us have too much of a pride issue to do that. But that's actually the call of the scriptures because it's never been about us. And it's always been about him. There will be a day, I love that, there will be a day, the scriptures tell us, with no more tears, and no more pain, and no more confusion, and it'll be just glorious. But unfortunately, that day is not today. We still have the tears, and the pain, and the confusion. Not every day. Some of us a lot less than others. Be thankful. Some of you a lot more than others. Yeah, we can still display, and know, and believe and choose to trust that Jesus is trustworthy even in those moments. I want to read one more scripture. Romans 12, 9 through 21 is just, it's, it's one of my favorite passages. We read it a lot. It's so holistic uh, in its des- description and depiction of what it looks like to, to follow Jesus and who we should be as the church. It's pretty diverse. It says this, love must be without hypocrisy. Detest evil Cling to what is good. Show family affection to one another with brotherly love. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lack diligence. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. You're already getting the picture. There's going to be both good and bad that we face in this life. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be in agreement with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. 
Try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for his wrath. For it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. I love that. Look at verse 15 again. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. That's a a command we need to embrace. Rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Weep with those who weep or mourn with those who are mourning. There's a few prerequisites to actually embrace this command. One, mourning requires being honest about the painful and broken things we are doing. If people are going to be mourning with those who are mourning, it's not just honesty with ourselves, but it's honesty with other people. Here's what that means. You are not meant to walk through these doors or into somebody else's home or into any type of relationship you have with people of this church or other people following Jesus and pretend to have it all together. Like when we walk in here on a Sunday, there should be a mixture of a lot of things. And on any given Sunday, if it doesn't happen, it actually means we... As as leadership within this church, we as a community are doing it wrong. If there's not tears on any given Sunday, we're doing something wrong. Because what we're saying is that's not accepted here. Because I know there's reason for tears in this room. If there's not laughter on any given Sunday, we're doing something wrong. Because we do have a lot to celebrate. If there's not a mixture of anything and everything that happens in life when we walk in through these doors, then we're just pretending and we should all just leave because it is not worth pretending. To mourn with those who mourn, to rejoice with those who rejoice, number one, requires honesty. Number two, it requires community and not microwaved community. I think it's really funny. People come into a church or they want to belong to a church and people want these microwave things. You want a microwave class so we can learn all the stuff that we need to know about Jesus. We want microwaved fellowship groups so we can have great relationships with people. We want microwave this and that, like quick results, quick fixes. Quick fixes don't exist. If we want people to mourn with in our time of mourning, if we want to be able to mourn with people when they're mourning, if we want people to rejoice with when something good happens in our lives, how sad is it for someone to go through something just brilliant and exciting and not have anyone to celebrate with? We have to start working on that now. When we study the scriptures, Some of you will leave the church for this. That's okay. What we find out is that studying the scriptures is not enough. When we study the scriptures, what we find out is that we need the people of God to bring God to us. We need people to rejoice with. We need people to mourn with. We need to be the ones that celebrate the victories in others' lives. And we need to be the ones to be there to be a shoulder to cry on. Because there's reasons for tears. Now, I'll close with this. I remember a number of years ago, I actually don't remember how many I was teaching on celebration one morning as, as one of our, our practices. And the first service, as far as I can remember, I think it went well. And it was in between the two services. I went and got my second breakfast of the day, another donut and cup of coffee. I was doing good. Uh, worship started for the second gathering. I'm still in the lobby recognizing, okay, I've got like a few minutes left before I need to get in there and and go back up. And I see my wife, and she had that same look my father had of, 
something awful has happened. And I walked up uh, and I said, hey, what's going on? And then she just lost it and started bawling and crying. And I'm like, oh, uh-oh, this isn't good. And she shared that she was having a, a miscarriage. And so at this point, I'm like pulling out my phone, looking at Planning Center, going like, okay, how many songs do I have left to figure this out? So I'm heartbroken and ripped apart. Obviously, there's loss for me, but just watching my wife hurt so much in that moment was brutal. And, and so I talked with her as much as I could, and then I'm like, I, I, there's nothing I can do. I just I have to, we'll figure this out together. I'm so sorry. I love, and I just had to walk away because I had to be up here to teach on, of all things, celebration. It was, it was fantastic. Um, it, was, it was actually sort of good, though, because even in the midst of those types of moments, we're still called to celebrate, not to be dishonest about what we're going through. Uh, there's a couple uh, really key things I remember from that experience, too, that, that really stand out. One is a day or so later, maybe later that night, we went to the hospital, and we got admitted and whatnot. And so Chelsea and I, I think my parents were watching the, the other kids or something. We're, we're in the hospital room and the nicest kid you've ever met in your life. He's like 19 or 20. He's this tech that's taking all of her vitals and information for when the, the doctor will come in later. I mean, he was, he was brilliant. He was so nice. I wanted to hire him. I'm like, he's great at customer service, something. This kid is phenomenal. And he's just making small talk. Everything's great in there. And he starts asking questions about our family what we liked it, like everything. He's just doing a great job. And then he finds out we have kids. He goes, oh, do you guys want to have more kids? And he had no clue what was going on. He, he left like 20 seconds later and Chelsea and I laughed so hard. Like there'd been enough time to process that just like the deep irony of that question was actually helpful. I'm like, this poor kid, if he only knew, like he would be so mortified in the moment. No idea. I remember that. I also remember that as I had to come back up here to teach on celebration, as my wife is bawling in the lobby, she had her Our Kids shirt on. She was supposed to be serving. Whitney, who is uh, Our Kids director, found a sub so that Chelsea didn't have to, to serve and she could go home. I didn't really know this. I just had to come up here and teach. So I did. Whitney still had to work in our kids that day. Whitney and I both ended up leaving here about the same time and going to our house. We're really good friends, uh, our two families. And I pull up into the driveway. Whitney pulls up into our driveway. We both walk into my front door, right, after, after church on this day. I walk in, and there's Robert, who is, is one of my, my best friends. And he's cooking for his kids and my kids. He's literally cleaning the house and somehow keeping them quiet. Like, all of this is happening at once. Like, I walk into my house and another man is cooking and cleaning and watching all of the children. And there's a lot of children. And I was like, this is incredible. And I walk in and, and my wife is able to just be in bed alone in our bedroom. I'm able to go talk to her. Robert and Whitney that were there for a little bit long, and they just did whatever they needed to do. They went and got groceries, they cleaned the house, they cooked, they offered to take the kids, but we're like, no. That doesn't happen overnight. We have a really beautiful, good relationship. The four of us laugh a lot. We now go on vacations together. Kids go to similar schools back and forth. Like, we do, we do a lot of things. I fully trust them and us. It's, it's, it's fun. It's good. You know what's crazy, though? I met... Robert and Whitney in that lobby about six years ago. I didn't know anything about them. You know how we started a conversation? It won't be shocking. It was about basketball. And that started one of the best relationships I've ever had in my life. 
to the point that this man could be in my house cleaning and cooking and watching all of our kids while my wife was going through a miscarriage. That's not microwaved. I share that out of gratitude. I share that also to say, you need that. And that work was put in for that, and God's grace was put in for that. But when we announce something like four and four, there's a reason. Because as small of a thing as having a conversation with a lobby, the first time someone walks in, you don't know what relationship that leads to. If we're going to embrace this command to mourn with those who are mourning and rejoice with those who are rejoicing, that has to start today for the day that the good and the bad happens. Of all people, I'm going to make a habit of ending every sermon with this, no matter what the topic of the sermon is. Of all people, Christians have the most to celebrate, and so we need to go throw great parties. So throw great parties, please. I'm going to end every sermon that way. And of all people, we have the most freedom to be honest about whatever in the world is happening in our lives because no matter whatever in the world is happening in our lives, Jesus is trustworthy in that moment. And so in the worst of those moments, we can actually display the trustworthiness of Jesus to someone else that probably needs to see there is somebody that is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. There will be a day, let me encourage you if you're in the midst of that valley, when it's over. There will be a day with no more pain and tears and question and confusion. It's not today. Even though it's not today, though, Jesus is with you and for you, and you have a church family that wants to be as well. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you never leave us or forsake us, that there's not a moment that goes by, that no matter what it feels like, you are with us. I thank you that you invite us to be honest and open about whatever's going on, that you can handle it. Help us to be increasingly honest with you. Allow us, bless us to know you more in the good moments and the bad. Provide relationships, God. May we become as a church, a family, so close together that we learn to trust. We build relationships where we can rejoice together and mourn together and that you might be glorified and known and honored in that. I love you and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. Once again, we are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona, and we are so thankful that you were able to tune in. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, Jump over to restorationaz.org to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about who we are and what we're about. Um, And if you have questions or if you'd like to connect with us, um, go ahead and hit that contact tab. We'd love to connect with you. And uh, until next time, remember... Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.